Creative Solutions proudly presents Sona Welcome to Sonar Waves, a Pariveda podcast. This is our inaugural episode here, and we're really excited about talking all things emerging tech. So let's let's kick off with some introductions. There's three of us here. My name's Brian Arell. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Pariveda. And Sean, why don't you kick off next? Sure. Thanks. Uh, Sean Beard. I'm a Vice President within Emerging Technology at Pariveda. And last but not least, my name is Ryan Gross, also a Vice President in Emerging Technology. I'm, I'm happy to have our rambling chats recorded live as a podcast for the whole world to listen to now, but hopefully looking forward to getting some feedback from outside of our little circle. Definitely. And uh, just a note, if you do want to engage with us and um, ask any further follow-on questions, uh, the email is listed, but it's just mtech, E-M-T-E-C-H, at parivetasolutions.com. So that let's kick off uh, our topic for today. And it's really uh, kind of getting our hands around what is one of the most significant security breaches that we've experienced really in the history, the modern modern day history of technology and networks. And that's the SolarWinds attack that showed even some of the most secure applications, some of the most trusted applications and secured infrastructures can be vulnerable to kind of advanced threats. And it's left the security community quite stunned in terms of the breadth and depth of what it poses as threats. And we have some thoughts on how some of the modern modern approaches to the way networks and infrastructure is built that can help mitigate that threat. And I do think it's important to um, emphasize that we're talking about threat mitigation and not prevention. But thoughts from the guys in terms of uh, just kicking this off, what you thought of when you first when you first heard about this threat and what the potential risks were with this threat? Well, I'll go ahead and kick it off. Um, so when I first saw this, it, it was amazing how there was so much happening in the country that when all this started to happen in uh, roughly early December, um, that there was so much, so many other things happening is kind of flew under the radar when this happened. But because it did impact so many public institutions, parts of our government, and then led to attacks against other government entities or outside of the U.S. government, uh, it, it was really amazing to, to watch how this happened. And, you know, admittedly, you know, I'm not trying to take this one way or the other, but this is also starting to to reveal much more sophisticated threats coming from state-sponsored actors, not just uh, the old chaos computer club sitting in their basement anymore. So that we've got to think a little differently on how we approach this. For sure. Yeah, and I, I think that the fact that they were going after networks that a lot of people consider to be like isolated and completely kept out. F- from pulling in technologies, uh, so for, or really from pulling, from getting attacked via direct network connections from outside, meant that they needed to find a novel attack vector. So infecting some software that is actually tied directly into monitoring the network and is considered a security tool in and of itself as that first step, and then using that to infect these high value targets. Well, I guess it's not the first time that's happened, Generally, people consider those security vendors like SolarWind as almost, 
you know, impenetrable in and of themselves, almost as much as they do with government networks. So, so what do you, what do you guys think about like the, from an accountability perspective, who, who would even be accountable for these types of attacks? I, I think that's a great question. Um, cause I, I've asked that question a lot. Um, you know, and because accountability is, is really going to get wrapped up in, in, you know, where is like, we, we've talked often about like, where's the throat to choke on that. And I'll even extrapolate it outside of solar winds. And, and I would even start that it starts with us as the public. Um, how accountable do we hold companies for the cyber attacks that happen? Like I've often asked people, do you still shop at Target? Do you still shop at Home Depot? Because these are all very large entities that have caused a lot of us to have to get new credit cards because the information got out and, and all those things that happened. But there's been very little accountability that we hold. And so I, I think asking who's accountable for these attacks is a really good question because I, I haven't really seen a good answer to who's actually held accountable for these types of things. Yeah. And I think that's somewhat the mechanism by which you're holding them accountable in consumer cases, right? You theoretically can vote with your wallet in a government case. It, you know, it's pretty hard for you to vote out your representative because an attack happened at the state department for, from Congress. The other side of it is the accountability that, you know, people were talking about this as, should we consider this an act of war? because it was a state-sponsored adversary carrying out the attack. So how do you hold the attackers themselves accountable for these types of things is probably the other side of that coin. I don't know that we're going to go too far down that path, but the the fact that you know these types of attacks run the risk of starting wars gives you a, a sense of the gravity. For sure. And then what even a war looks like as a result of that, because it's not ground war or anything in that respect, it reminds me of, uh, when North Korea went after Sony, right. Um, that I think felt to be taken a little bit more seriously than, um, not, not more seriously, but maybe more seriously from a government reaction perspective to the, uh, supposed instigators of that, of that breach. So, so the interesting and really mind boggling thing about this is if you were going to pick one one piece of software to go after that uh, might be the most trusted piece of software within uh, the the confines of a network, you would think network monitoring would be right up there. And so that kind of brings up the the standards of of zero trust and and um, if you're picking how much trust you lend to uh, network monitoring, it's probably much higher than many of the other pieces of software that live in your in your environments. Yeah, absolutely. It, it gets to the point where it brings us back to where operating systems were back in the early 2000s, where buffer overflow attacks were just happening. And people kind of got to the point where they eventually said, you know what, we we can't prevent these. There is no way that we're going to prevent all of these from happening. So we need to switch from prevention to mitigation and detection when they do happen. And that's really where I feel like this particular attack kind of put me over the threshold there of, oh, wow, we need to be thinking about that, not just in individual pieces of software, but 
in the entirety of our infrastructure because once something is compromised now it's really hard to vouch for the the you know the safety of the entire system and i think um you know one of the things that as you know as we first started to get into cloud right i mean cloud it seems it's almost ubiquitous at this point with with a lot of the solutions that we put in place but in the early days of cloud one of the biggest concerns was how secure is cloud there was a concern about moving out of your the walls of your data center into the cloud because it was not as secure and so one of the things that really started to pop up was this concept out there called the principle of least privilege meaning that we're going to start design in order to make administrators and CISOs feel a lot better about about putting their assets or putting software workloads into the cloud, we had to show that we can secure the environment by by using this principle of least privilege, which actually you could even take that all the way back to how Microsoft, uh, when Windows XP Service Pack 3 came out, I remember that was the introduction of the Windows firewall where it became, you had to opt into opening your ports. They weren't all open by default anymore. And so that's kind of the premise behind a lot of this is we are going to grant access to resource on a need only basis and not have like, and you know, the, the dreaded star dot star that I'm sure everybody is aware of, you know, it, it's just not applicable anymore because you need to assume that everything outside of your component is compromised. And that kind of leads us down the path like Brian uh, touched on just a couple minutes ago was the NIST zero trust framework and, and how those things kind of fit into how they fit into all of this on how do you actually have metrics and build KPIs and, and be able to have checklists to say, yes, we are following this zero trust kind of model to be able to, uh, to help secure the environment, not just the piece of software, not just these individual components, but getting the whole environment secure. So if I'm, if I'm a for, you know, this, this attack affected fortune has affected fortune 500 companies, actually even the fortune 10 companies. So maybe unlike some of the ones you referenced before, Sean, like Home Depot, Target, um, where, where the easy answer from a consumer perspective is, you know, shop somewhere else, uh, ruining your credit cards. And the easy answer from a board perspective at those organizations is, well, we're just going to fire and replace our CEO, I'm CEO, sorry, CIO, this is affecting so many. It's, it's not like the organizations necessarily need to compare each other from a who got attacked, but how did it affect their entire organization after being attacked? Because I imagine those repercussions are going to be different based on the way they've implemented security procedures outside of being all universally compromised. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, let me, my interpretation there is if you look at the people who got attacked in this case, or the organizations that got attacked, while we don't have the inside knowledge to know exactly what frameworks they had in place, they likely had low trust environments already. So mm -hmm. each component having its own isolation, only opening the right ports, only keeping mm -hmm. subnets for deck, you know, uh, networking connectivity, that's absolutely essential, so on and so forth, you know, take your best practices document and, and assume that it was applied here. And yet, the attackers were still able to not only compromise them, but stay undetected for 
I, I don't know that it's actually come out exactly the time frame, but at least six months. And so like even in a zero trust environment where you don't necessarily within each component trust anything outside of that, the sophistication level of the attackers has gotten to the point where essentially they are better than the pe- the defenders, even those that are trying really hard. So, so if we go with the assumption that you can't prevent these intrusions, you can only mitigate the results of those intrusions or the or the uh, effects of those intrusions, then how how do we think an organization, if I'm a CISO at an organization, how am I ensuring that the least amount of damage is being caused when, not if, these compromises occur? Yeah, I, I think taking a, a cue from what happened with the buffer overflow attacks, like I was talking about before, the most successful mitigation technique that I know of for those was when they started implementing memory randomization. So your kernel memory, the really privileged stuff that you want to hide from people shifts every, I mean, it depends on the operating system, but in the order of seconds, so that when you are compromised, it's actually really hard for the attacker to go find the next piece of their attack. So that first compromise doesn't necessarily provide them the ability to just sit there and map the entire system and then figure out how to take their next step over and then you know use that six months to their advantage. So if you turn that six months into one hour or one day, their job becomes much harder. Interesting. And that that randomization is really what benefits the most. It's not not having a moving target and how quickly it moves is is really the the best mitigation from that previous buffer overflow attack. Yeah. And and there's other things too. It's not like that's the only thing, right? There's lots of static analysis and other great tools that have come into place to make it so that there's a lower chance that these bugs get out there. But the, the mitigation on the other side is getting to that point of you just have to assume that you're going to get compromised no matter how well you do on prevention. And a good pattern is a good pattern, right? Uh, uh, Yeah. It's, it's it's one of those things where it's, it's almost what's old is new again. Um, kind of thing is if we think about cloud and we think about how we're approaching solutions, right? There's obviously less of an emphasis on what's happening at the operating system level, especially when we start talking about uh, containers or we're talking about serverless implementations and things like that. But the threats are still there and they're still very real. And so thinking, starting to think about security in terms of, of how that buffer overflow problem was solved we can start thinking about how do we actually secure our environments in the cloud or on on prem in our own data centers by thinking about how can we still introduce that level of randomization into into our environments and into the overall how we can secure the front door or just at least have some some way of preventing things whenever they come in the back door because i think what what we've all said is absolutely correct is it's it's a mitigation. It's not a prevention. We're not going to be able to prevent people from getting in because there's the only way we can do it is the old network standard. Uh, the most secure server you could have is you put it in a room, don't connect it to the network, lock the door and throw away the key, right? That's the most secure server you could possibly have. And so with that not being realistic, I think it's it'd be interesting. It's interesting to start thinking about what are the next patterns that we can have and I think that's that's something that we've called kind of security through rebuild, where we have the ability to constantly turn our solutions into these moving environments where if we have a container or we have an instance that is there, 
Well, that instance only lives for some finite amount of time, like 60 seconds. So if an instance gets compromised, then it's compromised for no more than 60 seconds, which can help mitigate what an attacker can learn, what an attacker can actually do, because effectively they go in the front door and then suddenly the house disappears, right? And so how do you, and it, and it gives you that ability to start mitigating the impact of these, of these threats um, instead of focusing on prevention. So that's really interesting, Sean. So you're saying memory randomization in the past is now the modern day cloud resource randomization in the future. I, I would think so. Uh, that that's definitely you know it, it's funny because when when we first started to think about this, it was looking at it was the uh, the in AWS the spot market and how you can get really really cheap servers. And so we started thinking about what if Amazon.com or Expedia.com or Yahoo or any of these sites could actually just run purely on these spot instances. And whenever you use that market, if you're not, if you had never used that market before, the one thing you have to plan for is for your resources to suddenly disappear. And so um, the way that market works. And so if you can design your systems to actually do that, then you start taking that same philosophy of my resources can actually disappear at any given time. And then we just make them disappear at any given time. And that way it becomes, and it maybe it's not 60 seconds, maybe it's a random time that each server will live or each instance will live so that you can then just have that full level of randomness. And yeah, and what you're describing there is actually what, you know, I think Netflix pioneered with the chaos monkey. So your servers are in there in your infrastructure and something's gonna randomly kill them every some period of time within an hour. And as you take that up levels, Netflix actually has this stuff open source where they have Chaos Gorilla that's going to basically kill a region. A whole AWS region will become unavailable and you'll need to activate your failover into another region. And what we're, I think, talking about here is taking that concept and instead of making it more of a, an uptime driver, using that and going a few steps further in terms of randomizing. So like randomizing your IP addresses, no fixed IPs, randomizing your security group names, various other parts of your infrastructure so that when you bring it back up, it doesn't look like it did before, but it still works. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Sean was alluding to early on that modern cloud architectures really frightened a lot of security organizations at first with the amount of touch points and opportunities that can can be compromised in those environments relative to um, kind of established patterns within within traditional data centers but it would be hard for me to imagine how you could accomplish what we're discussing with resource randomization if we didn't have modern cloud architectures to fall back on. So it's almost like, yes, there are new, there are new threats within there, but there are also new mitigation strategies that, that really put cloud architectures uh, far ahead of what we had to work with before. Could, could you guys envision uh, the resource randomization that we're talking about in a, in a data center? You certainly could, but the amount of effort involved to make that happen would be monumental, I would believe. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you get to that that physical layer of it, of you have to pay for the physical hardware and the networking connectivity and the IP connectivity that underlies this. So if somebody can get into that layer, then in a data center bound solution, you're still compromised no matter how many times you take it down and bring it back up. Yeah, and, and you know the, the other side of this that has made 
made this even possible or more possible, we'll say, is, you know, you've got this within the cloud. What was a hardware process is now a software process. So we've got a lot more control in how we provision resources and how we're actually able to do all these things. And, and you know, I've always, we all know there's limitations, but you know, AWS has always said, well, you can have an infinite number of X, right? And it's like, okay, well, then if that's the case, then we should be able to spin things up, spin them down, and we can all do it from a, a automated software process uh, instead of having somebody, and I used to be the poor soul that was sitting there stacking and racking servers in a data center, right? And what that You're sounding old now, Sean. Well, you know, I've been around a while. So it's, uh, but yeah, it's the, the ability to do everything from a software base is, is incredibly powerful. And we, we should look at them as advantages in the cat and mouse game that's always going to be played between the attackers and the um, security side of it. Definitely. And, and, you know, we'll probably do some additional podcasts. We definitely will in the future on EDA and event-driven architectures. But is there is there something particularly there that I think beyond, you know, if we talk about abstraction and, and randomization, that seems to be a much less problematic environment to be exposed to in, in a situation like this. Purely just in terms of its its fundamental architecture, independent of a lot of additional layers that you'd have to uh, you'd have to plan for. Am I off on that? Oh, I think you, I think you're right on, Brian. The event driven world reduces the coupling between individual services, so I don't necessarily even need to know where Sean is and where Brian is in order to understand what I need to do when you guys take a particular action in that world, and that then really reduces it. If I was looking at what the complexities of implementing this are, service discovery is like the number one hardest problem in this world of everything's going to have to come up and then register itself with some service discovery service. And how are they going to know where that is? Because if they, if that's known a priori, then attackers could take advantage of that in an event driven world. And especially where you're relying on a event bus that Theoretically, you could also change out because the complexity of actually set, taking in a message and then sending it out, right? It, let's pick AWS again. You could use SNS for that. You could use EventBridge for that. You could use um, Kinesis for that. And theoretically, you could make it so that when you bring up the stack, you actually change where you're sending your messages and receiving your messages to try to even avoid that potential bottleneck in terms of something where the attackers could come after you. And, and even even then with um, modern event buses, right? It's if we're looking at it, there's a couple of ways I could think about this is it's if I'm looking at event buses from a managed service perspective, you know, and if I'm looking again at cloud, the primary or the, the large public cloud vendors, you've got event bridge on AWS, event grids on Azure and Istio is popping into my head on uh, on GCP, but that's not an event. That's not actually not an event bus, but it, what I but the but the point is is that it's it's you're going between my the the solution code into a third party into the cloud vendors world and then back so that's a level of of abstraction and in a lot of these modern event buses you've also got a decoupling between the rules that govern the delivery of those events are decoupled from the services themselves so that I can start changing the rules on how those messages are delivered independent of the services registrations. So it's one of those things where, yes, I know that this service is going to, is going to um, 
subscribe to these particular things, but then I can also externally control how those things get delivered and when. So it, it becomes really powerful, again, from a security perspective on preventing an attacker from learning how things are, where things are and how things are delivered. And so you can keep, keep that changing. It seems like it's really critical to emphasize that while uh, public cloud architectures support what we're talking about here, it doesn't inherently mitigate these risks just because you're in a public cloud architecture. And that may be, goes without saying for some people listening, but I think it, it's worth repeating, just like we um, saw in previous outages from major vendors when there was the big AWS outage, and we you could almost see the, the organizations that were on AWS that had architected it not correctly for preparing for outages. And then as, as Ryan alluded to with Chaos Monkey, you saw Netflix be able to roll with the punches that 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 that's an example where it's not just about where your services live, but it's critical that you've got the right architects architecting that solution and using those services effectively. It's almost like when we talk about the memory randomization being an influence to what we're advocating here, it's it's a mashup. It's memory randomization and what we've learned over time building modern cloud applications in terms of avail high availability that you mash those together and it's now not about high availability but security security coming from the randomization we did before and then you know just like internet scale resource availability and resource randomization it's just a really good good mashup so what would what would you guys say would be the uh, the best approach for folks like considering like you know we know these these uh, attacks this isn't the last attack and it's not the last time that organizations are going to be exposed in ways similar to this so from a from an architecture and from a knowledge perspective how should people start approaching architecting systems in this in this way that we're advocating? And before I even go into that, I don't even think that this is the worst possible attack. We talked about this, the managed services from the cloud providers. I, I still feel like the worst possible attack, and it's coming, is the there has been a major infiltration of a core service on a public cloud provider. And how do you, you know, of that service, not necessarily like everywhere in the world, the source code was infected, but like in one region, somebody got into some service and was just sitting there listening to what was going on for some period of time. And I, th I think a lot of what we're talking about here would help you mitigate that as well. If you only lived in that region for a period of a day, and then the next day you were somewhere else and you only came back later in a different part of that same region, it would be harder for an attacker to get after your corporate application or infrastructure. And then I think taking it to the next step from there of what could you be doing now? I think it's also to that, are you trying to shoot for a hundred percent availability question? Adding this extra evidence puts more business value or risk mitigation, I guess, behind that argument that it's worth investing in modern cloud native solutions that have best in best of breed DevOps practices, continuous deployment, monitoring, self-healing, the things that 
that we consider for net new greenfield applications and taking that and saying, how can we apply this to everything that we consider critical within our portfolio? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I, I think it, it's really incumbent on on us as, as people building these solutions to embrace these new this new paradigm, the new patterns that we see emerging and letting go of some of the old data center things that we used to do. Uh, it gives us a whole new realm of possibilities of things that we can do to really kind of not only may have things be more secure in order and, and also just giving us the ability to be as flexible and have all the promises that we want to do as we build out these solutions as well. It's kind of like, uh, you get a lot of additional benefits beyond security. You get by architecting it this way, you get your high availability, you get your failover, you get, it's, it's just all, all goodness there. And I think the, the key lesson there is this is, we're all still learning on this path, right? They're like the, the, um, the strategies, the, the strategies have been forming over the past 10, 15 years. They'll continue, but um, it's really interesting how, how it, like, I think uh, Ryan was the one who said it's, it's a cat and mouse. We're going to, we're going to be exposed to new things and we'll come up with, with new ideas, but having an infrastructure that's much larger than any one organization could afford or plan for architecting is really a great foundation to begin with on this journey. Well, I enjoyed our first little episode here. I don't know about you guys. Hopefully, we'll get some good feedback from um, folks out there listening. And uh, once again, just to remind everyone, mtech at paribetasolutions.com. Give us a shout. And we look forward to our next conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Brian, for putting this together. And thanks to everybody who's listening.